Today's episode of the Hope and Help podcast features a conversation about issues such as childhood sexual abuse, rape, and fostering marital intimacy. We invite you to listen at your own discretion. Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I'm chatting with Nate Brooks and Anna Mondel about their new mini-book, Help, Our Sex Life is Troubled by Past Abuse. For more help on the topics we discuss today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guests. Nate Brooks serves as the Assistant Professor of Christian Counseling at the Charlotte campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. Nate and his wife, Kate, and their children live on their mini farm in Rock Hill, South Carolina, raise meat rabbits, and attend Lake Wiley Baptist Church. Anna Mondel serves as a soul care provider, working primarily with women who are recovering from abuse. She and her husband are members of New Life Presbyterian Church and live in San Diego, California, where they spend most of their weekends enjoying the beach. Hey there, Nate and Anna. Thanks so much for joining me for the show today. Thanks for having us, Christine. Yeah, really glad to be here, Christine. Thank you. Before we get started on our conversation, I'd love to give each of you an opportunity to take a few minutes to share why you wanted to write a resource on this topic. Yeah, so I, you know, I never thought or planned to write uh, on this topic, but when I did have a chance to join Nate uh, on this project, writing about the impact of past sexual abuse on a marriage, it, it just, it did feel like a really significant thing that I wanted to be a part of, partially because I'm a counselor who works with a lot of women who have experienced abuse in their past and they're married and they're working through the aftermath in their marriage, but also Maybe and maybe more importantly, um, not only through the lenses of a counselor, but um, this is a story I've lived from the inside as well. Um, so I don't just have a professional interest in this topic, but um, I'm also a sexual abuse survivor who has been working through sexual, just pursuing sexual flourishing in my own marriage. And I, I know from the inside just how complex it is and how few people actually talk about it. So it was important to me to at least start a conversation and, and in the church and in counseling context. And that mattered a lot to me. So that was, that was my reasoning. How about you, Nate? Would you take a few minutes to share why you wanted to write a resource on this topic? I'd say like Anna, this resource for me really came out of a spot of, of loving people and wanting to help them grow in the middle of really, really challenging situations. So I'm a counselor as well. And in my counseling of couples who have dealt with trouble in their sex lives due to past abuse, there really wasn't a resource that I could put in their hands that was written from a, a gospel-centered, Christ-saturated approach. And so was really grateful to team up with Anna in order to, to write this. I think one other uh, reason that I really felt compelled to start working on this kind of project is a lot of times in counseling, you only get to meet with one half of the couple. And that gives you uh, a, a relatively limited reach to the other spouse who may not be willing or is unable to come in for counseling. And I think part of my hope is that this resource be something that a uh, an individual who's seen a counselor could, could then take home and work with their spouse who may be a little more hesitant or resistant to counseling, particularly, especially in such a, an intimate and, and tender topic there. That brings up a good point. You know, I was reading the mini book and there was a statement right in the introduction that really made me pause and, and question whether or not this is something that you and even Anna come up against in the counseling room with regards to trying to help couples navigate this particular challenge. You write, no husband or wife can ever look at their spouse and say that challenges arising from sexual abuse are, quote, your issue. Is that something that you have to address frequently when it comes to sexual abuse trauma in the past and helping married couples navigate how to move forward in their sexual relationship? You know, Christine, I think that you can take that tendency of married couples looking at one another and saying, this is your issue, 
and blow that up across just about everything in marriage, right? We are naturally self-centered human beings who want to uh, push many of the challenges that we face as being the other person's responsibility. Just, just go figure that out, and then it will stop messing up my life. Uh, unfortunately, that's actually entirely antithetical to how God understands marriage and, and designs marriage. If you think about the, the book of Genesis, the first thing we learn about marriage is that two become one. And, and Paul fleshes that out later in, in the book of Ephesians, where he describes marriage actually as a picture of Christ and the church. And, uh, and when I hear a, 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 or kind of get the vibe of, of a spouse who essentially thinks, look, the sexual abuse, that's your issue. You go solve that and then come back to me when you've got your problems figured out. That actually strikes at the heart of the gospel. Because without the understanding from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, saying your sins I'm taking upon them as my issues, we're not regenerated. We're not able to be justified. Uh, that's not to say that a uh, spouse uh, who's married to a sexual abuse survivor functions like Jesus or, or is the savior in the relationship. I don't mean that at all. Rather, what I'm trying to say is that there is no distinction between this is your issue, this is my issue. Because when we uh, marry someone, we become one with them their hopes, their joys, their fears, their concerns, their troubles become as much our concerns, hopes, fears, troubles as ours are. Because according to the Bible, to become one. Yeah, what Nate just said is so crucial. It's so foundational and I love it. And just to add one thing, because I, I don't typically work with couples, I typically work just with women. And just to add on to this, uh, something that I typically see with women who even have very supportive husbands, who are very invested, maybe even come to counseling with them to understand them better and just to be a supportive presence. Even when women have supportive husbands who are like, no, I want to, and, and I'm assuming, you know, for me in this case, the sexual abuse survivor is a woman. That's not always the case. But even when the spouse is so supportive, there still can be a tendency. Um, I know this is true in my own life. This is true of the women I work with to feel a sense of shame, to feel a sense of, man, I'm causing so much extra trouble in our marriage. Our marriage would be so much better and easier and more normal and more uh, just, it would, it would, everything would be better if I didn't have these issues. And so even, even if your spouse isn't making, isn't actively communicating and articulating that to you that, oh, this is your issue. I think there's a huge tendency just because of sexual abuse creates in you a sense of, a sense of shame, a sense of responsibility for what happened very often. Like, Hey, this is my fault. And so that bleeds into marriage with or without your spouse telling you that, that very thing that, oh, this is your issue. So it's, it's a tendency, even in a supportive, healthy, mutually beautiful marriage, it's still a tendency for the sexual abuse survivor to feel like this is my problem, my fault. I need to go over here and figure it out. And, and this is all me. Everything would be better if I could just get over this. And so I, I would just add that, yes, that's a really, that's a crucial thing um, to be aware of in a marriage that's impacted by sexual abuse. Well, thank you, Anna, for adding that. And I wonder maybe you can just uh, continue on on your train of thought and help us to understand. You mentioned about shame being at work. And so I wonder maybe you can give us some insights as to the lingering emotional, physical, and spiritual effects that someone who has been victimized by sexual trauma may be experiencing, especially as it relates to marital intimacy. Mm, yeah, that's such a that's such an important and good question. And I, I love that you use the word lingering um, because traumatic memory, traumatic experiences like sexual violence and sexual abuse, it's not an experience that stays locked in the past. It's not frozen in time. The effects do linger. They continue to linger. They continue to show up even if the abuse has stopped. And so, so one, one thing that it's, that's so important to remember as you're thinking about the aftermath of, of abuse is that just like you articulated, it is holistic. Abuse affects the whole person spiritually, emotionally, physically. Um, and so just some examples of that, because we're embodied souls, you know, it's a holistic impact. So a physical example would be um, something called hypervigilance, which just means that your body just kind of tense all the time. 
and you're rigid and you can't relax and you're on the alert. And physiologically, this is because if you have been systematically sexually abused or even abused just once, and uh, it's only been a, a one-time occurrence, a one-time event, there's a sense of fear. Like, man, I got to watch my own back. I don't know who's going to be coming up behind me. I don't know when I'm going to be in danger. So I can't relax. I literally can't relax. I have to be looking all around me all the time. And so that can manifest in behaviors like locking your car eight times just to be sure you did it or um, having to sit in a certain place in a restaurant or in a church, like in the back or so that you can see everybody and that nobody's behind you, nobody can take you by surprise. And so if we play this into, okay, what does this look like in a marriage? Well, if you can't relax and if you're always watching your back and if you're always alert and rigid to the possibility of, of pain, that makes it really hard to enjoy sex, right? That makes it really hard to enjoy intimacy. That makes it really hard to just be with someone because it's like you have this background program draining you, draining your battery all the time because you're always looking for danger. You're expecting danger because it's happened to you. It's not something crazy for you to think. You have been hurt. Um, and so you're always on the alert for that. So hypervigilance would be that physical manifestation. Um, and then that's how it would play into a sexual relationship. But then, you know, and then that would emotionally manifest as high anxiety. That would be the emotional layer. But then spiritually, you know, kind of the question behind that, behind that sense of, I have to always be on the alert is, maybe the question like, does God really protect me? Like, can God protect me? He, he allowed this to happen to me. He allowed me to be abused in this way. Like, can he be trusted? And, and Christian people who love the Lord with all their hearts can still ask that question and, and sometimes feel uncertain. Like, can I actually relax into God's grace and trust him to protect me? So that's a, just a sort of a spiritual manifestation is we're not always sure that God is trustworthy. Even if we've known it, we've heard it, our experience makes us feel like maybe he's not. So that's one like layer of examples. Another one that's really important for marriage that I always find myself talking about and thinking about is this physical tendency to, uh, I think the psychological term is dissociation, but that would just be considered like splitting off, mentally checking out, going someplace else in your imagination. And for a second, if we want to just imagine like a little child, right, who is just just a tiny little person, four, five, six years old. Sadly, this is very, very common, but who's sexually abused at this tiny age? Well, how is a child? A child doesn't know what's happening. Like how they don't know how to think about what's happening. It overwhelms their body and their brain. And so it's actually a mercy from God that our brain allows us to be able to escape through imagination. And so that's a really common thing that, that a little child will think, or an adult, this isn't happening to me this is happening to somebody else. And they mentally check out, maybe fix their eyes on a point in the ceiling or imagine a place. And that's how that they can just actually survive the experience. Well, if that becomes part of how you deal with overwhelming situations, that doesn't end when the abuse ends. That carries in, that carries into the rest of your life, this sort of mentally checking out, going numb, um, not wanting to feel, not wanting to think, and just having this sort of numb, emotionally and mentally checked out posture that you walk through life with. And so, you know, if you think about how this could impact a marriage, again, um, if you have this sort of encoded bodily physiological response of, okay, during sex, I am, I've trained myself to check out. I've trained myself to feel numb. I've trained myself not to feel. That's really hard work to learn to be present again in sex. Even with a safe, wonderful spouse who is aware of your past, it is hard work to learn to be present and to learn to enjoy the moment and be in tune with your body and be in touch with what you're thinking and feeling. So this ability to reconnect with your body, with your thoughts, that's kind of a, a physical and emotional aftermath. Um, and then spiritually, this isn't really exactly directed to dissociation, but spiritually another impact of abuse. And this is the last one I'll mention. There's so many more, but this is the last one I'll mention for now. It's just uh, this, as I mentioned before, this sense of shame. Um, and I'm, I say that shame is a spiritual aftermath of abuse because there's no reason for a sexual abuse survivor to, to carry that shame. They didn't do anything wrong. They were not responsible 
for what happened to them. But because sexual abuse dehumanizes a person, um, it's degrading, it's dominating, it's, it's, you're treated as, you, as if you were subhuman. So of course you feel dirty, of course you feel ashamed, of course you feel worthless. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what God says about you as an image bearer. Like you are, Psalm 8, you are crowned with glory and honor. Isaiah 43, you are precious, you are loved, you are honored, the opposite of shame, the opposite of worthless, the opposite of valueless. And so that sense of shame can be another thing that maybe creates distance between us and God. And we just feel like we're too disgusting for him. And so that, of course, impacts the spiritual relationship. It impacts how we show up with God. And so those, there's so many more examples. It's different for everybody. You know, everybody's going to experience this a little bit differently, but those are some that have been true of my own experience and, and um, that are, that I've worked with a lot of women that experience these things as well. Well, thank you, Anna, for sharing those. I just have to take a minute to acknowledge that that was really hard to listen to. And I would just, I want to say too, you know, for the listeners who are tuning into this conversation, you know, just to acknowledge Mm. the wickedness, how it's just heartbreaking. Um, I mean, and you haven't even shared, I mean, you barely scratched the surface of what survivors of sexual abuse are wrestling with. And just to Mm. think of that experience and sometimes the fact that maybe even their experiences were were chronic they were a long term it wasn't just yeah. once yeah it just breaks breaks my heart and so Nate I want to turn the conversation to you because we may hear you know all the things that Anna just said and I, I'm feeling like a weight in my spirit right now of how awful mm-hmm. it is and we may not really understand that God's word is not silent about this kind of wickedness. And when it comes to the topic of sexual abuse, you guys say, quote, the Bible does not sanitize the ways in which human beings sexually exploit one another. So Nate, can you offer an example narrative that supports this statement and maybe explain why you think it's important for couples to know that God's word does not gloss over this kind of evil? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the, uh, I, I guess we could only be termed as the Harry Potter generation, right? So these books kind of progressively came out uh, during my growing up years. And I've always been struck by the way that Harry Potter talks about the chief villain, Voldemort, differently than everybody else. Just about every other character in these novels refer to him as he who shall not be named or you know who. And there's this one moment where there's some dialogue in the novels that's really striking, where Harry Potter essentially says, it's nonsense for you not to use his name. Because when we refuse to use his name, we give him power over us through our fears. And I've always stepped back from that and thought, that's really insightful. One of the things that I love about the Bible is, like we've written in our, in our mini-book, it, it, it just gives us an accurate, unflinching perspective of what it's like to live in a sin-saturated, sin-soaked, wicked world. Like you, Christine, my heart breaks when I hear Anna describe that, that, that short list of, uh, of responses and troubles that people live through. Uh, my heart breaks every time I hear a couple talk about sexual abuse in, in my counseling office. But one of the things that I love is that the Bible gives us a picture that that kind of suffering is what happens on earth. And if the Bible were silent and never mentioned it, we wouldn't know what to do with it. Uh, So by recognizing the fact that sexual abuse happens, the Bible claims for itself authority to be able to speak into those situations. So there's, there's so many passages that come to mind. I forget how many we wound up listing in the booklet, maybe seven to ten. One of them would be uh, when Jacob and his family move into a new section of the promised land there, and Dinah, Jacob's daughter, goes in and meets with the ladies uh, of the town and catches the eye of the powerful prince who is next in line to the throne in the city. And he uh, seizes her and rapes her and then sends her back to her family. And Jacob does absolutely nothing about it. And then the brothers go and kill everybody. This is just part of the stuff of what human experience is like. 
And the fact that the Bible is willing to acknowledge that such wickedness exists gives us hope because now that means the rest of the Bible's promises and help that it offers includes the depths of wickedness that we have already seen. If the Bible never acknowledged that sexual abuse exists, how could we know that when Paul says that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ, how would we know that sexual abuse would be included in that list of nothing if the Bible never mentioned that such things existed? It's important for it to be named in the Bible because then we can read the promises uh, and say, yes, this is included here because the Bible itself recognizes that this exists. I love that. I love, um, Nate, what you shared about naming evil uh, and that it it shouldn't be something that shall not be named. It needs it needs to be named. It needs to be spoken. I think about it, Ephesians 5, I think it is, where it says, expose the evil works of darkness so that you can experience the fruit of light, which is goodness and truth and righteousness and all the good things. And so the point of naming evil isn't only about naming the evil and saying, okay, like this is real, but it also, it's part of, it's part of healing. It's part of being able to experience God's light as we expose the evil, um, the evil realities of the world and the evil realities that have happened in our own lives, our own bodies, our own stories, to be able to acknowledge that God's redemption reaches even here. So when we vocalize it, there is, we're acknowledging that evil exists, but then we're also acknowledging that like God's hope speaks into this very place too. I want to let the audience know that there, I mean, I think that you could hear from our conversation that we could talk about this for hours and still not even scratch the surface. So it was really hard to figure out what questions to ask for our 45 minute or so conversation about this really important under-addressed topic. You know, I think one thing that's important to remember in, in this conversation is that this is a massive, sprawling issue that pushes into all kinds of crevices of, of, of our lives. And as, as Anna and I have written this mini book, we desire for it to be a conversation starter, a helpful little tool uh, to give you uh, or those you're helping uh, categories to think through, to raise questions, to give some brief answers. But we, we do want to make clear that this is not meant to be a comprehensive resource. Uh, at the end of our book, we do give a, 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 a bibliography of other works that Anna and I have been to be really helpful and wise guides that are larger in scope and address issues that we weren't able to talk about. Um, so I just want it to be clear what we're trying to do here. We're trying to start conversations to orient you or those you're helping towards Jesus Christ and, and begin a process of healing and hope for you. For now, we're just going to offer some high-level overviews, uh, some practical helps that may serve counselors who are walking with couples who are going through this particular challenge, or also if you're a listener who has personally experienced, you're, maybe this is what you're living right now. You're living this kind of question of how can we get help for restoring our sexual intimacy when this is a part of a spouse's painful past. And so, Nate, I want to give you a minute to talk about what you and Anna describe as a push and pull in a couple's sexual intimacy that needs to be acknowledged. And so as you counsel supporting spouses who are trying to love their husband or wife through these particularly distressing issues, what are some of the biblical push-pull wisdom principles you encourage them to consider? When we think about uh, the ways that a supporting spouse can help and care for their spouse who has been a, a victim of past abuse, uh, one of the first principles that comes to my mind is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He, he mentions that all things are permissible or, or lawful, but not all things build up. And when we think about the purpose of marriage, it is for the upbuilding of the other person in Christ. And that includes a couple's sexual relationship. Uh, one of the ways that a couple can care for each other well is by caring for each other well sexually. Now, sexual drives are strong. And for the supporting spouse, whose spouse is struggling uh, with sexual intimacy, this can be an incredibly frustrating experience. You have sex drives, and they're not always met the way that you would want them to be. 
or hints or suggestions could be made early in the day that suddenly don't come to fruition in the evening because something took place in that time frame that you may not understand. And I think this principle of all things are lawful, but not all things build up gives a really helpful framework for supporting spouses to care for someone who's suffering at the hands of others in the middle of a sin-scarred world and universe. Right? Marriage is a union between two people, and both individuals bring different challenges and struggles to a marriage. And that's going to be unique for every single marriage. Not everybody's sex life looks the same. Not everybody's sex life should be the same. The question that we want to consistently be asking is, is this profitable? Is this building up for my spouse? Oftentimes, the way that our culture presents sex is sex is about self-gratification. But actually, in the scriptures, it's uh, a way of serving your spouse and caring for them as you're seeking to build them up. And if any of our desires are destructive to our spouse's health and wholeness as a person, to their faith in Christ, or their trust in us, those are things that we need to hold back from, that even if they're lawful, even if they're permissible, they don't serve God's ends of us serving our spouses well. And because of that, we're to care more about the greatest good of growing our spouse's joy and delight in life, joy and delight in marriage, joy and delight in the Lord, uh, than we are for our own sexual desires. So that's how we see the push and the pull, Justine. The, the, the Bible pulls us back from things that may be lawful, but aren't profitable. And it pushes us forward in faithfulness, uh, defining faithfulness as caring for the other person. I'm so grateful that the Bible doesn't just say, don't do these things. Uh, that would be quite frustrating. Rather, it says, we're, uh, pull back from these particular expressions of love towards your spouse and pushes us forward in other expressions that are helpful and caring for the spouse that God has given us. Anna, how about from the survivor's perspective? When someone is living through the very real and painful lingering effects of sexual abuse, what is the push-pull that the scriptures encourage them with? Yeah, this is this is so important. And it's also, you know, the push-pull that God pulling us back um, in love and then pushing us forward in faith, um, it can look really different for every survivor of sexual abuse. So maybe one survivor of sexual abuse might really struggle in the area of maybe being afraid or disinterested in sex or just not, just like, hey, I don't want to go there. It's too painful. It's too hard. It's too frustrating. It doesn't mean they don't have a desire for sex. It just means it's that scary or just that holistically upsetting, unleashes a torrent of flashbacks and, and painful body memories. Um, and so for legitimate reasons, there's a fear or a disinterest um, or self-protection that will naturally pull them back. Um, and then for others, they are almost pushed forward in a sense of, okay, I want to regain control. I want to regain my sexual agency and control. And I'm going to be the one who's in control of this encounter. And I'm going to be the one who calls the shots. And that, again, that's not helpful, right? Because then sex is not characterized by mutual self-giving, mutual desire, a desire to serve and love the spouse. It's about you. And it's about you not being helpless like you used to be. And it's about you taking control like you like you wanted to be able to. And so to counteract that not so good push-pull in the scriptures, depending on what your posture is, God, God encourages us. If you're a person who's afraid of sex or disinterested in it, or it's just too frustrating and you want to protect yourself, God encourages us in the scriptures to take risks by faith not because he wants us <laughs> to feel misery and fear and just like, just obey, you'll be fine. His posture toward us, I think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, his posture is like, your father knows. Your father knows what you need. He knows your story. He knows what you're struggling with. Um, and so, yes, there are things to be anxious about. There's things that you're going to be afraid of in sex. There's things that are going to be challenging. And that's, so acknowledge that pain. That's legit. But 
belief, trust in Jesus, trust in a good father who knows what you need can push you forward into loving God, loving your spouse sexually, because he knows what you need. He knows who you are. He knows your story. And it's an opportunity, right? To fix your eyes on, on beauty. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says again, like, okay, look at the wildflowers. Look at the birds. I care for them. And if I care for them, how much more am I going to care for you? And so that's, even though that's not a passage that classically, you know, really applies to, to sexual abuse, it can, it can really be one that can be helpful and calming to remember that even if my husband doesn't know what I need, or my spouse doesn't know what I need, even if I in this moment don't know what I need, or um, I'm tempted to be anxious about things I can't control, my father knows. He knows. So I can acknowledge the pain and then engage Christ in this moment. Um, and so that would just be, that would be one example of how God pushes us forward. It gives us the ability to take risks by faith because he's asking, he's asking us to do something that, that honors him. Like sex is sex in marriage is actually a gift given us for our flourishing, for our joy. It's part, it's part of how we experience, like pleasure is good. It, all of this is good and beautiful and can be, there can be beautiful new healthy memories that you create on top of the destructive and the, the painful ones. And so it is worth it. it God, God is asking you something for your good, not to just, oh, push through the pain and be a masochist and it'll be okay in the end and you'll have a reward in heaven. That's not what he's asking. Um, he, he is working for our good even now. So that's just an encouragement that I, I remind myself and I remind other people is that God knows you. He knows your unique struggles and he's pushing you forward to do something that's for your flourishing and for his glory. Nate, what are some of the practical steps that the supporting spouse can take as the couple begins to work toward rebuilding their sex life? When we think about how a supporting spouse can care for their spouse as they seek to begin building their sex life, I think it's important to remember, first and foremost, that sex doesn't start with sex. It starts with a relationship and marriage. And I think this is one of the challenges that I see couples face when they, they go to address this issue is they, they, they start with uh, the problem of uh, our, our sex life isn't going well and then want to run immediately to, well, let's just figure out some ways for us to communicate sexually, some things for us to do sexually that will make things go a lot better. But really, uh, sex, is, God has designed physical intimacy to be an outflow of emotional and spiritual intimacy for the Christian. And so really where couples, uh, especially a supportive spouse, should, should start is by working on, on cultivating an atmosphere of love and care for their spouse, especially for uh, a, a, the spouse of a, a sexual abuse survivor where their spouse has experienced sexuality in the context of manipulation, power, and uh, being used. We want to re-kind of move that into the context of, of love and care. So the, the first thing is to have a genuine interest in each other's cares and concerns. Right? It's important for spouses to have consistent times of conversation and connection over what's going on in their lives, to talk about their successes, their failures, their joys, their sorrows, uh, as this is kind of the cornerstone of, of a marital relationship, as two become one in their concerns and, and such. I think another thing that's important is to defer to your spouse's preferences, paying attention to what your spouse loves, to what makes them laugh and light up and invest yourself in those things, right? Team upon a project, play a board game, take a class, choose a movie that your spouse likes. You, you want to learn to prioritize your spouse over yourself as that will have a significant impact in the way that you approach sexuality with your spouse. As uh, if there's consistent patterns of self-giving that does help your spouse relax, as Anna talked about earlier, in knowing that your first and foremost desire is to care well for them. I think other ways would be to, you know, actively involve yourself in parenting, uh, if that's the stage of life that you're in. Uh, actively involve yourself in supporting your spouse's career, if that's the stage of life that you're in. Uh, you want to contribute to the things that your spouse cares about. 
because you're supporting them as a person, which is the opposite of treating someone as subhuman. I think also you want to use your words consistently to, to, to draw attention to your spouse's faithfulness. Uh, Anna mentioned earlier that shame and guilt are oftentimes uh, emotions and challenges that uh, abuse survivors are, are wrestling through. And even if there's the category of life, of sexuality, that's not going as well as either of you would like, there are still so many other categories of marriage and your relationship where you get to see the uh, joyous expressions of your spouse's Christ-likeness and, and drawing attention to the ways that your spouse is faithful and a delight to you and the joy of your heart does much to help cultivate the kind of atmosphere that's going to blossom into a fruitful sexual relationship. Anna, what are some of the practical steps the spouse that has survived sexual abuse can take as the couple begins to work toward rebuilding their sexual intimacy? So one, one thing that I would love to just call attention to before I dive into practical steps, and there are practical steps that are hopeful and, and helpful and really good and that, that can be useful um, to a person, but, but just kind of as an organizing principle before going into the practicalities, I would just encourage, I would encourage the person who is the survivor, um, it's okay that this takes a really long time. It's okay that maybe even listening to this or even thinking about the possibility of paying more attention um, to your sex life, it's okay that that might fill you with like anxiety and dread and wow, I don't even wanna think about this. No, I, it, this is hopeless. I have been married for, you know, you might think, you know, I've been married for X amount of years. It's always been this way. This is just how it is. It's just, I'm just going to be a person who doesn't enjoy sex, or I'm just going to be a person who struggles. And that's just it. This is my lot in life. And I know I've felt those things. I personally have felt those things of just like, you know what? Hey, let me just have a stiff upper lip and just go with it. It's just going to be hard. It's okay. And that is, that's a, that's a, it's a realistic, you know, it makes sense that we would feel this way, right? That we would feel hopeless and despairing and just uncertain that anything can change. But um, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening, who is a survivor of sexual abuse, that there really is so much possibility for growth, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen uh, maybe in the order that you want it to. I, I say this to myself and to other people all the time, healing and recovery never happens in a straight line. It never happens in a straight line. It is not linear and logical and in nice, easy stages. This is a zigzaggy, frustrating process sometimes, but just like training for a marathon or just like learning a new skill or anything that's worthwhile. It, it's going to take time. It's going to take practice. And so I would just want that to be sort of maybe an undergirding reality is that, yes, this will be frustrating. Yes, this will sometimes feel hopeless. And sometimes you're going to cry and you're going to be mad and you're going to be just, it's going to be frustrating, right? But it, hope is possible. Progress is possible. New things are possible. God is a God who does promise to make all things new. And that does include our embodiment. That does include our sexual relationship with our spouse. And so as a person who has experienced a, just a beautiful degree of healing just in a couple of years of marriage and is still on the journey and is still going to be on the journey forever, I know that hope is possible. I've seen it in women that I work with. I've seen it in my own life. And so I just want to encourage, just as a very long introduction to the practicalities, I would just want to encourage anyone who's listening that hope and change really are possible. They really are possible through Christ. And, and I would just say there too, if you are the spouse of a sexual abuse survivor, I would really encourage you to maybe rewind and listen to that again, what Anna has just said, but listen to it with a little bit different lens. Listen to it through the lens of trying to understand what's going on inside of your spouse. So often it's easy for us to simply look at the troubles that uh, our spouse is going through and saying, this is incredibly frustrating because if you could just get over this, everything would be fine. But, but recognize that this is a significant struggle for your spouse and that if they had their preference, none of this would have happened to them. None of this would be a continuing mm -hmm. issue in their relationship with you. And I think that gives you an opportunity to love your spouse well to say, we're in this together, that this isn't something that's just frustrating to you and is fine with them. 
but rather this is something that's frustrating to both of you, and that gives you a common thing to work through together in Christ. You guys are allies, mm -hmm. and I, I just think it's really helpful to draw attention to that. Yeah. Oh, that's so important. Thank you, Nate. Yeah, so some practical things um, that a survivor of sexual abuse can uh, work toward and practice toward, um, practice by faith, take the risk by faith to practice um, in his or her sex life um, with their spouse is one of the most important things is just being open and vocal, um, talking about things. So say that either you're in the middle of maybe starting to have sex or maybe you're talking about it bring it up bring up something and say you know you know when, when you said this or when you did this or when this happened i'm not even sure why but it really made me uncomfortable and it really made me go to a dark place um, and i wasn't able to enjoy that experience um, because of this and that sounds like maybe to somebody who has not experienced sexual abuse that might sound like a really basic really easy thing like, of course, let's talk about it. But for someone who has survived sexual abuse and is maybe is sensitive about this area of sex and is sensitive to like, wow, I don't want to create more trouble. I don't want to create drama. Um, I just want to be okay with everything that happens. It actually, it requires a lot of work to be able to be vocal and to say, you know what, that's not helpful to me right now. Or this is actually really, this hurts. Or I'm having a bad memory right now. Can we stop for a second? Can you pray with me? Can actually we just take a second and I need to listen to some music or can we go take a walk actually instead? So being able to be vocal and it's not just about speaking truth and speaking what you're feeling and experiencing in the moment. That's not just good for you and your spouse. It also is pointing to this reality that we see in Psalm 103 that we are limited we are limited people. Like God knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust and he has compassion on us. And so as humans, whether we're, we've survived sexual abuse or not, we are limited people who will not just always be able to just be like, wow, sex is happening perfectly and it's so easy. And we're just going with it because we learned a few practical principles. It's always going to be something that has to be communicated about. There has to be communication. And so I, yeah, I would just encourage both the, the surviving spouse, but then also the spouse who hasn't experienced sexual abuse to just encourage dialogue, encourage conversation. Like, hey, how is this for you? Are you okay? What's going on? And that might feel a little bit awkward at first. It might feel a little bit like, wow, this kills the mood. But it's actually, it really contributes to intimacy. In the long run, it really contributes to closeness and vulnerability and transparency. It's really, really important. And so like for, for me in the first several months of, of my marriage, I didn't even know how to communicate when I was, when I, when it was not enjoyable or I was not feeling good or I was starting to have a flashback. And my husband, who is so just gentle and tender and kind and attuned to me, he had to learn to be like, well, she's probably not going to tell me. I have to start asking. I have to start asking, are you okay? Is this okay? And then he would, he was honest enough and loving enough to communicate to me, hey, it makes me feel really badly if I think you're hurting and I don't know. Please, can we talk about it? And so that was a huge step for us in our marriage to be able to just have transparent conversations like in the middle of sex itself or before or after. Um, so that would be one thing, just talk about it. That's one practical step, just talk about all these things. Another important thing on the in the same realm of communication is maybe once you as a couple have talked about the fact that, wow, we maybe need to do some work in our sex life. We maybe, I maybe have done some things wrong, or I maybe need to grow in this area. When you recognize that, um, either as an individual or as a couple, um, it's important to give yourself the freedom to start over. And when I say that, I mean, it's okay to give yourself the freedom and the permission to say, you know what, we have all of these ingrained maybe practices and patterns of maybe this is how we do things. This is what our, you know, sexual traditions have been, or this is how it normally is. This is the time of day. This is the way it's normally been. I've worked with people where it's really been helpful for them to say, actually, you know what, we're starting over and we're questioning everything now. And I am allowed now as the sexual abuse survivor, I am allowed to question everything and to say, is this helpful? Is this good? And again, it's like learning something for the first time, but that allows you to start fresh without any of the old memories, without any of the old things that maybe you thought were working. You know, you're like, oh, well, this is just what we do. But to give yourself the freedom to say, no, 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 I might have some really painful memories. 
attached to some of these places. Let me start over. Let me think. Let me ask for help. And so, so yeah, that would just be another, another realm of communication. Another thing that isn't appropriate for every couple, but can be appropriate for many, is to actually pray, um, to engage Christ to remember that we are not alone in this place. Like sex is actually a gift from God. He has given it for our healing and for his glory. Pleasure is something that is part of the presence of God. And so this is beautiful. This is a beautiful, good thing. And so to actually just pray and to acknowledge God, we're scared or I'm scared or this is hard or I don't even wanna do this or I feel hopeless or I'm despairing. Will you please be with us? And that, for some people, that's not going to be comfortable, especially if they were abused, say, by a spiritual authority in their lives. That will not be appropriate. Um, that will not probably be your first line of defense or the first thing that's helpful to like pray together. But, but it can be very, very helpful if it's not triggering, if it doesn't bring any bad memories, to be able to just engage Christ, to acknowledge what you're feeling, and then engage Christ. Like, God, help us. Um, we need you. We need help in this place. So those, I mean, there's, wow, there's so many other practical things. Just the one that I would, two, two that I would end with is, is one, kind of like Nate suggested, build up your non-sexual intimacy. Things like massages that don't end in sex, or things like just being able to like, I don't know, give your spouse the freedom, like, hey, take a bath, listen to some music. I'll, I'll be in here and I'll read you a book. Um, something like that, that's not explicitly a sex act, but it's something that's sensual and intimacy building, that can really be a safe place for an abuse survivor to begin. Um, and so we, we talk in the mini book about taking incremental steps and that, hey, it's a win. Sometimes it's a win to just be able to sit on the couch together and for your spouse to have his or her arm around you and you just have a, an intimate conversation. That is a win. That's good. Um, so don't evaluate yourself by like, oh, did we have sex or not? Or was this good or not? Hey, are we making small incremental steps toward wholeness and intimacy? Are we turning closer to each other? Are we engaging Christ in this process? Those are wins and those are to be celebrated. And then just finally, I would just encourage Again, not everybody's going to be interested in this, but for me, this was very helpful. Um, educate yourself. Educate yourself about what are helpful things for women to be able to relax during sex. How does sexual abuse impact a marriage? And we have some resources at the end of the mini book that are helpful in those ways. So, you know, read, talk about a book together. Um, and, and definitely beyond, beyond books. And the last thing that, that I would mention that's really important that I forgot about uh, is that counseling is so helpful. I and mean, this is not healing from sexual abuse and trying to build something beautiful together in your marriage is not something that you can just do alone. It's not something that you can just read a book about and everything radically transforms. And we usually need another person or another couple walking alongside us, somebody who maybe is trauma-informed, who is sensitive to these unique problems, unique um, struggles. Um, so I would just encourage most of us, we're not meant to change alone. None of us are meant to change alone. God has put us in communities and in churches. And, and so just look for safe people, safe mentors, counselors, get somebody else to, to be part of this with you, to encourage you, to help you, to, yeah, to help with your individualized situation. That's so important, Anna just to really emphasize the fact that being an individual is important in this. Oh, yeah. Because nobody's marriage is the same as someone else's marriage. Yeah. Uh, I am married to my wife, and we create a marriage that is unique, that mm -hmm. is very different than you being married to your husband. Yes. Now, you guys love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the expressions of that just look really different. Yeah. And so when I am talking with the spouse of a sexual abuse survivor, one thing that I really want to consistently remind them is that your job, your God-given holy calling is to love the man or woman that you're married to. And that's not a generic man or woman. Mm. Rather, you want to know how to bless your spouse in particular. Mm. And that one individual is God's gift to you. Mm. And you get to do something that no other human being on earth can do, which mm. is to know that person so well that you actually know the things that sexually help them. And you know the things that sexually hinder them. Mm. And you pursue those things that are sexually helpful 
and to refrain from those things that are sexually hindering. That is such a joyful calling for an individual because you're the only one on earth that can do it. Really great points, Nate. Thank you for tacking that on to Anna's answer. Uh, We've got time for just a couple more questions. So Nate, I'm going to keep the microphone with you, I guess you could say, and ask if you would help us think about goal setting. And I know that when we're dealing with counseling situations, you know, having a biblical perspective on what the goals of what we're working towards is really important. So can you help us to understand, you know, when you're counseling a couple working through this kind of an issue, how do you help them to set realistic goals or have realistic expectations for what the road ahead is going to be looking like? That's such an important question, Christine, because the goals that we set are going to be what establishes success or failure. So if the goal is awesome sex 100% of the time, where there's no hiccups and everybody's really, really happy, if that doesn't happen 100% of the time, automatically we've now failed. And that kind of all or nothing thinking can, can set a couple up for a lot of discouragement when there could be a lot of rejoicing in the fact uh, of how well things are going and progressing. So anytime you're dealing with abuse, you're, you're looking at two different factors. One, you're looking at uh, the abuse itself. What happened? Who was the abuser? How long did it go on for? What level of abuse was it? And then there's another category of how are you responding to this? What troubles is it creating? As people uh, respond differently to different situations based off of personality, and and none of them are automatically better than another. Different couples are going to be at different places in terms of where they start and what their goals are. So, uh, you know, for some couples, it could be that a really great first goal is just to sit closely on the couch with the husband's arm around the wife for 10 minutes and reminisce about something, about some happy memory of when you guys were falling in love. It could be that that's about the strongest expression of physical intimacy that's wise and uh, helpful for you guys right now. That, uh, th- that's a win. That is a positive upbuilding expression of physical intimacy. Uh, physical intimacy is far more than just having sex. It's everything that kind of uh, is in that category of expression, expressing physical affection for your spouse. Uh, it, it could be that kissing is a helpful goal to set, to express physical intimacy that way with one another. You know, a, a, a sensual massage, whether clothed or unclothed, that doesn't lead to sex. Uh, you know, laying closely together in bed while unclothed. All of these are different kind of steps on the way towards sex that can be helpful for couples. And what these allow couples to do is, is to experience safety inside their relationship, inside of more and more intimate contexts. I, I read a statistic actually that 90% of individuals are helped by consistent incremental exposure to things that produce anxiety within them. It doesn't mean that the anxiety goes away, but it means that 90% of individuals experience a decrease in anxiety over exposure to the things that, they, that, that can lead to anxiety. You know, that's, that's not revealed in the Bible, but that's a really helpful observation of human beings that we can use to our advantage, that can, couples can use to, to help themselves grow in sexual intimacy. Well, we are at the end of our time together. So I'd like to invite both of you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. So Anna, there may be someone listening to this episode who is a survivor of sexual abuse and is struggling in many of the ways that we've discussed today. What would you say to this person to give them hope that God can heal and restore this area of their marriage? Mm. Oh yeah, I love that question, Christine, so much. Uh, the, the first thing that I would say to you, if you're a survivor of sexual abuse and you're wondering if there's any hope for your sex life in your marriage, I would just encourage you with uh, a passage from Isaiah 61, um, which is a prophecy that is applied later to Jesus and the gospel of Luke. But it says that Jesus has come, Christ has come 
to give us beauty and flourishing and joy and freedom and hope. Um, and he, he takes our, our captivity, our feelings of being trapped, our, our enslavement to sin, our shame, all of those things. He takes that and transforms it into something beautiful, but not only for the sake of your flourishing, but also it ends in Isaiah 61, three, he does this for his glory so that you can be a, a righteous tree rooted and planted by the Lord to glorify him. And so just in a sentence, I would say that your flourishing, your healing, your sexual flourishing and healing and freedom is a part of something that gives him glory, is a part of, and God is committed to his glory. He works for his glory. And so it glorifies God when you are able to enjoy him and enjoy his good gifts. And sex is part of that. And so I just encourage you like, your sexual healing. Um, it's not only about you. Um, there's a bigger kingdom focus that deeply, deeply matters and is beautiful. Um, and God is progressively, even through pain, even through fire and flood, um, he is working. He is working for your beauty and your good and your flourishing and your freedom and hope. And, and just and practically, on just a practical level, I would encourage you to not view your past to not view your sexual abuse as like having a broken rib, you know, having broken ribs, something that just you need to go in a corner and self-heal and control the pain. Um, many of us, myself included, many of us have thought of our sexual abuse in those terms. Let me just be in the darkness, be by myself. It'll go away by itself. I'll manage the pain by myself. No one has to know it's going to all just heal quietly in the dark on the inside. That's not the way God heals us for, from any of our pain. Uh, you know, maybe a better metaphor to think of is that when we are in the process, when you are in the process of healing from your sexual abuse um, and pursuing and building something beautiful with, with your spouse, it's more, like, it's more like the repetitive rehabilitation that happens maybe after a stroke um, where your brain and body, you have to relearn everything. You might have to start over and relearn how to walk and how to talk and how to think and how to be. Um, and you need help. You need people who are skilled and compassionate to help you. You need a team of supporters around you. Um, and so that would, that would just be my other encouragement. Please don't try to do this alone. Um, certainly don't try to do this without the help of your spouse. Don't be by yourself. Um, you're not alone. You are not in this by yourself. God isn't asking you to just self-heal and control your pain. He is providing a help team, uh, whether that's through books and resources and a counselor and some friends and your spouse. Um, but just, just look for, I would just encourage you so deeply. Um, you can't do this alone. You're not meant to do this alone. You're a human with limits. And so God has put safe, good people in your life. And so just look for those people, pray for those people, ask for those people um, so that you can have a, a helpful care team around you as you are healing and flourishing for God's glory. Thank you so much, Anna, for those encouraging words. Now, Nate, there may be someone listening to this episode who is a supporting spouse of an abuse survivor. Perhaps they resonate with what has been said today, but they're feeling frustrated, discouraged, or even helpless about what's going on in their sexual life. What would you say to this person to give them hope that God can heal and restore this area of their marriage? One of the places in scriptures that I think all of us have turned to when we're tired, when we're weary, when we're discouraged, when we're hopeless, is Jesus' words in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. This does a couple things for us. First is it reminds us that Jesus is the place that we can go when we are weary and burdened and hopeless, and he will give us rest. It does not mean that our circumstances are immediately fixed. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden our sex life is exactly what you may hope it will be. Uh, rather, what it means is that Christ is able to wipe away our tears, to meet us in the middle of our troubles, and to give us hope and confidence that he is working, that he is delighted with us, and that he wants us to continue walking forward in faithfulness. God is tender and kind towards his children. The other thing it does is it gives us a, a template to follow towards our own spouse. Everyone in marriage wants to be the Christ-like individual who is a place for a weary and burdened spouse uh, to come communicate their troubles and to be a place of rest. And, and couples who are dealing with uh, the impact of sexual abuse inside of marriage, we want to be like Christ towards each other, where you're able to take hurts and troubles and be that safe place of rest for your spouse. 
Thank you so much, Nate. Thank you both for those words of encouragement. I want to let the listeners know if you are interested in learning more about Nate and Anna's respective writing ministries, both of them blog about biblical counseling topics frequently. And so I want to give you the opportunity to check out the resources that they have available. You can scroll down to the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to a webpage that will give you access to the various websites that their articles are hosted on. Well, Nate and Anna, thank you so much for the time and the care that you took to put this mini book together. I'm really thankful for the hard discussion that we had today. This is, like you say in the mini book, an under-addressed topic, especially in the church. I am privileged just to be able to have facilitated a dialogue, and I hope that the listeners are encouraged, maybe some of them are comforted, or even equipped if they're counselors to better love people, love couples who are walking through this type of challenge in their marriage relationship. So thank you both so much for joining me on the show today. Thank Thank you so much for having us. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.